Well, good morning. One of my life verses is Proverbs 29, 18. Where there is no vision, the people will perish. Now, the Hebrew word used for perish is the word palra. And it was a common word used to describe when a woman would let her hair down so that it was unconstrained in the wind and would blow in different directions. And the the author is using this everyday common expression to say to the Hebrew people, where there is no vision, the people will become unconstrained and easily blown in all different directions. So for the past 12 years, we have done a vision series at the beginning of every year. So that we don't get blown to and fro in all different directions, but instead, so that we as a church family can hold steadfast to the vision that God established for us when we planted in 2008. Our vision at Hope Chapel is to be a gospel community for the flourishing of the city. Our identity as individuals and as a church is rooted in the work Christ accomplished and applied to us through the cross. This redeeming work isn't only applied to individuals, it's God's desire to bring spiritual, social, and cultural renewal to our city and the world. And to help us accomplish our vision we are committed to what we often refer to here at Hope Chapel as the big three. The big three are corporate worship, as we gather here on Sunday mornings, community groups, and serving Greensboro. Now, over the years, these three have taken on different forms. For example, during the pandemic, we're not only having in-person worship, but we're also worshiping virtually. We've also seen over the years that Serving Greensboro has taken on different forms. We once partnered with Jones Elementary School to help tutor students. And today we are partnering with Black Suits Initiative and Out of the Garden to help those who are hungry in Greensboro. And as we move into 2021, we are always open to reforming ourselves so as to best achieve our vision. So over the next five weeks, we are going to be looking at Paul's letter to the churches in Ephesus to help us put our hair up, those of us who have hair, so that together we can wholeheartedly pursue our vision. And this morning we're going to be looking at chapter 1 where Paul reminds us of two very important principles as we seek to achieve our vision. And those two principles are that we share a common worship, and secondly, we share a common power. Let me pray for us. Father, we're grateful this morning for your goodness to us. We're grateful for your grace and your mercy We're grateful, Jesus, for the ways that you wrap your arms around us and hold us. We pray, 
Holy Spirit, that you would come. That you would illumine your word so that it would transform us from the inside out, both individually and corporately. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So I encourage you, if you have your bulletins, you can open your bulletins or open your Bibles. We're going to be walking through Ephesians chapter 1. And the first thing that I want us to consider is that we share a common worship. Now, to provide some background for the book of Ephesians, Ephesians is one of four of prison letters written by the Apostle Paul. Now, most scholars believe that these letters were written approximately 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And they were written by a much older and seasoned Paul who had faithfully served as a minister of the gospel and now who finds himself in chains in Rome. And as I was thinking about Paul writing uh, from his prison cell, I couldn't help but think of the grandfather reading to his grandson at the beginning of Princess Bride. I hear a much older, raspy voice. Paul, full of wisdom, gentleness, strength, and love, pinning this letter to his beloved brothers and sisters in Ephesus. And as we look at our text this morning, Paul begins with his usual greeting in verses 1 and 2. But then we see that he diverges from what he typically does, which is to tell the church what he's praying for them. He will come to that later in the chapter in verses 15 through 23. But for now, in verses 3 through 14, Paul gives us this beautiful window into his heart of worship and praise as he writes this hymn of praise to God. Now, as we read this hymn of praise, you'll notice that it's full of great theological truths. For example, in verses 4 and 5, Paul writes this, God choosing us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus according to the purpose of His will. In these two verses, Paul talks about predestination and adoption. And these are important concepts. But Paul here, he doesn't want us to get bogged down in those particular concepts because he's trying to paint a bigger picture. A grander picture. A picture that would lead our hearts to worship. In these 12 verses, Paul reminds us that when we think about pursuing our vision of being a gospel community for the flourishing of the city, we must always begin with our own hearts, individually and collectively bent towards God. Worship is the fuel for everything we are and everything we do. Paul begins in verse 3, with a brief formal prayer of praise and thanks. And then he continues to lift up his praise to God in verses 4 through 14. And it's easier when you're looking at this, because Paul can be a little wordy, to break it into three paragraphs. 
The first paragraph is verses 4 through 6. The second paragraph is verses 7 through 10. And the third paragraph is verses 11 through 14. As you look at the first paragraph, Paul writes, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Now, as you consider these verses, there's several things that you need to take note of. And first, we see that for Paul, worship of God is not just individual worship. Notice the plurality that he talks here. He uses words such as us and we throughout our text. Secondly, you see for God, for Paul, God's work is accomplished in and through Jesus Christ. He has blessed us in the King in verse 3. He chose us in Christ in verse 4. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ in verse 5. And He blessed us in the Beloved Christ in verse 6. You'll notice that Paul celebrates God's grace in this first paragraph. Reminding us that God chose us before the world was made. And He chose us not based on anything that we have done, not on our works, but based on His glorious grace. So then, as we move on to the second paragraph, Paul continues to worship God. If you look at verses 7-10, through 10, Paul tells us the story of the cross of Jesus Christ in such a way that we can hear underneath it the ancient story of the Passover that we just studied. Paul says in verses 7 and 8, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us. Paul celebrates that our salvation is the result of God's covenant kindness that began with Abraham and follows us through the exodus in Egypt. Then in verses 8b through 10, we see a shift. Paul shifts us from focusing on our individual salvation and celebrating what God has done there to the grand. As he tells us that this plan of salvation is not just for people. God is doing a work of renewal and restoration of things in heaven and things on earth. He writes, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. As we read our text, we can almost picture Paul kneeling at the foot of his bed in chains, lifting up his voice, proclaiming the mysteries of God in praise to His one true King. And then as you look at the third and final paragraph of this hymn of praise, he concludes by pointing us 
beyond the here and now to the not yet. The inheritance that will be given to all of us who profess faith in Jesus. Paul writes, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. Now often when we think of inheritance here in our kind of Western mindset, we think in terms of receiving money from our loved ones who have passed. But in the ancient Near East, inheritance was in the form of land. In Exodus, Moses speaks about the inheritance being the land of Canaan that was given to the Israelites by God. And here, Paul goes grand and he tells us that we will receive an inheritance. And it won't be simply a piece of land known, to us, known today as Israel. Our inheritance will be the whole world when it's been renewed by a fresh act of God's power and love. God's not going to destroy heaven and earth. God is going to renew it. God's going to restore it. And as Revelation 21 reminds us, heaven and earth will be joined together so that the dwelling of God will be with humans forever and ever. And who is the mark, the guarantee of of this inheritance that's ours? Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit will be the deposit for us for what is to come. N.T. Wright says, The Spirit is to the Christian and the church what the cloud and fire were in the wilderness. The powerful personal presence of the living God, holy and not to be taken lightly, leading and guiding the often muddled and rebellious people to their inheritance. In these 12 verses, Paul sings of the great story of the Gospel. In these 12 verses, he models for us true worship of our Creator and King and fittingly ends in verse 14 to the praise of His glory. And for us here at Hope Chapel, if we are to fulfill the vision of being a gospel community for the flourishing of the city, we must first and foremost be a worshiping community in which this beautiful gospel story transforms our hearts and is never far from our lips. Renewal and restoration begins with worship of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that I love about what we do here at Hope Chapel is that when we gather on Sunday mornings like this morning, we have a liturgy. And every Sunday morning, we basically walk through the Gospel story. We are called to worship by the God who chose us before time and who is a loving Father that always seeks after us. We confess to Him that we are not worthy of His love and affection, 
due to our hearts that are prone to wander. And as we confess, we are assured that His grace is sufficient for all of our sins to set us free to walk in Him. And then we praise Him with our lips. We feast on His Word. And then we take part in the Lord's Supper, which is open to us regardless of our socioeconomic status, our race, our gender, or our past accomplishments or failures. We celebrate the good news of the Gospel at the table and the truth that at the foot of the cross is level ground. We are diverse but united in Him. And we close being reminded that as He has blessed us, He calls us to be a blessing to those around us so that spiritual and social and cultural renewal can take place in our city and in our world. This is the common worship that unites us and that marks us as followers of Christ. It all starts with our hearts bent toward Jesus. It starts with us individually and collectively lifting our voices in praise to our God and King and our Lord Jesus Christ. If we are to be a gospel community for the flourishing of the city, we must be a worshiping community for the glory of God. So the first thing that we see in our passage this morning is that we share a common worship. And it's this worship that's foundational for our mission. The second thing we see this morning is that we share a common power. After giving us a glimpse of this beautiful time of worship, Paul spends the next nine verses telling the churches in Ephesus what he's praying for them. And to provide some context for these verses, it's helpful to know that power is one of the great themes of Ephesians. Ephesus and the surrounding area were seen as a place of power. In social and civic terms, the city was powerful. It was a major center of imperial influence in Paul's day. It was also a power in terms of religious power. And he writes, says, all sorts of cults and beliefs also flourished there. Their world, in other words, was dominated by the principalities and powers, the various levels of rulers and authorities from local magistrates up to international recognized gods and goddesses and all stages in between. And so as you can imagine, there was a temptation for those in the churches in Ephesus to gain worldly power. And there was also a fear of being overtaken by these powers. But Paul, he understood the greatest display of power was found in Jesus Christ who conquered death. God is set apart from all other gods and men. He is superior to all the powers that might we might come across. And God always uses His power for good. He is the ultimate superhero whose character is perfect and whose actions are always, always done in the best interest of humanity and the flourishing of heaven and earth. Paul in his prayer for the churches in Ephesus 
is telling them that Christ's power is now available for them to use. Look at verses 16 through 21. Paul writes, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? According to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ, when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Paul prays that God would allow them, enable them, increase their wisdom and knowledge, so that they might see two things. First, the inheritance that we just talked about. But secondly, so that they might understand the power of God to put secret sins to death. The power of prayer to fight the principalities and powers of this world. And the power to be salt and light so as to bring renewal to our world. So often in our society, people are trying to gain power, to shift power from one collective to another. But in this prayer, Paul is teaching us that the ultimate power resides in Jesus Christ. And this power is afforded to all those who profess faith in Him for God's purposes and for God's glory. And this is very important, so please hear me. Christ's power is availed to us to heal, to mitigate sin in our own lives, to fight principalities and powers, and to bring about spiritual, social, and cultural renewal. But in order to do these things and to accomplish His purposes, we must have His heart. We must worship Him. And we also must have His mind. Who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. This is the shared power that we as followers of Christ possess. For us to bring about our vision, we as individuals and a church must be willing to humble ourselves, empty ourselves, die to ourselves, and give up power in order to have Christ's power work in and through us to transform the world. We need to be so tethered to God and always mindful of our propensity to sin so that we can use His power to bring about healing, not harm, justice, not injustice, and the life, not death. 
And when we're in this place of humility, service, and love, the Holy Spirit empowers us to bring about spiritual, social, and cultural renewal. And so, as we look at our text this morning, we see that we share a common worship and a common power. These are both foundational if we are to achieve our vision here at Hope Chapel. These are crucial for us being the gospel community that God is calling us to be. A community that is for the flourishing of the city. My hope as we continue to walk through Ephesians that the Holy Spirit will take His Word and it will transform our hearts so that we might fall deeper in love with Jesus. And as we fall deeper in love with Jesus and the Holy Spirit empowers us that we might go out, that we might preach the good news of the Gospel to our neighbors and share with them this beautiful picture that they too can worship Christ if they profess faith in Him. And that we can go out and fight against the injustices that are all around us. That we can speak truth with humility and with love and servanthood. And that we, as a community, can go out and bring about cultural change. That we can create beautiful music here. That we can create beautiful art. And that we as a church that for centuries was at the forefront of cultural renewal that we too won't be following culture, but we will be ahead transforming culture. This is my hope. This is the vision that God gave us in 2008 in which we and you have been faithful for over 12 years. I believe God's going to do great things out of this pandemic, in this pandemic, through this pandemic, when this pandemic is over. And there's greater things that are still on the horizon. And so, let's prayerfully bend our knees like Paul did in chains every day and worship him and love him. Amen.